Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and this is the Centered for Reality podcast. It's... Okay, I'm back on video. I think it's been almost like six months since I've done a video recording, but you know what? I, I want to get back on YouTube, so here we are. Anyways, it's Tuesday. I'm in the Reno Tahoe area. It is cold. Very cold. Last week was almost beautiful, and this week, here we are. So anyways, I hope your Tuesday is treating you well. I am, you know, just staying warm in here, probably going to go skiing later, but I wanted to talk about the Tyree Nichols murder, which is not a very happy topic, and then I want to relate that back to judicial deference, qualified immunity, and then I want to talk a little bit more about moral bankruptcy, moral corruption in the GOP, and talk about Matt Schlapp, the CPAC president or whatever you want to call him, and some kind of a weird sex scandal or groping scandal, whatever you want to call it. But first, a little palate cleanser, George Santos. He is the gift, I guess the gift that keeps on giving is would, would be the best way I would put this. So the Washington Post reports this morning, embattled representative George Santos of New York City told House Republicans that he will step down temporarily from his committee assignments amid multiple investigations into his campaign finances after he lied about key aspects of his biography. So, I mean, yeah, that's pretty damn obvious at this point. And I also saw that he spoke on Holocaust Remembrance Day in the House, which I found quite fascinating, the fact that anyone even let him do that. But this guy has no shame. Now, I hope he somehow gets removed. It'll probably be finances that get, that, that get him in trouble, not the lies, which is kind of a bigger issue in our society, in my opinion. But then I was listening to the Tim Dillon podcast over the weekend, and he brought up kind of a, <coughs> excuse me, kind of an interesting point. I don't know if I totally agree with it, but it was interesting. He basically said, look, George Santos is kind of an entertaining liar. Like, he just lies about everything. He's a compulsive liar. He doesn't know what to do. And... Compared to the lies that other politicians have told, like the lies that got us into the Iraq war, right, that ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people. If you look at what happened in Iraq, Syria, and in the United States, it's like those lies actually led to a lot of deaths. George Santos, yes, he's shameless, he's an asshole, whatever else you want to say, but as of now, at least, his lies haven't actually been as dangerous. This guy's just a compulsive nutbag. So, I don't know, food for thought. I still would like to see the guy go, especially just some of the lies he said are just insane. But anyways, I wanted to I want to get into the Tyree Nichols uh, murder, police brutality beating, just the chaos of it. And then I want to relate it to judicial deference as long as quali- as well, sorry, as qualified immunity. So I waited a few days to discuss this topic because I basically just needed time to really think about what I wanted to say here. I also wanted to listen to different perspectives on it, and so-so. And now, there really aren't many perspectives to have on this, in my opinion, because it was just brutal and tragic, and there's really no way to spin this. In the past, you know, there's always been someone who's like, well, he was reaching for the gun, or he was resisting arrest, or being violent, whatnot. And in this case, I've really not seen any evidence that someone could really defend what the cops did, no matter what. So this one, there's not a lot of different arguments I would really entertain on this one. But just a refresher, January 7th, 2023, so, you know, almost a month ago now, about three weeks ago, five police officers from the Memphis Police Department severely beat the 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. And this was during just a routine traffic stop, which always seems to be the case, and he was hospitalized in critical condition, died three days later, and yesterday I finally got myself to watch the video. 
I was hesitant to do it. I hate watching these videos, but I do think it's important to watch them because it's one thing to hear people talk about it, listen to a podcast about it, or read about it, but when you really see it, it's insane. And I won't spend too much time talking about the video, but I do just want to say that the lack of humanity in the video and by the officers in general is just kind of insane and tragic and evil. And in the most graphic and brutal part of the video, in my opinion, he doesn't really, Nichols that is, doesn't really appear to be resisting arrest. Instead, he's almost lifeless, which I guess, I guess if I was in that situation, I would probably slow down the beating. Not saying I would do the beating, but it was pretty obvious that he was not resisting arrest. He's also a tiny guy, so I, it, it made no sense. But you know it's bad when he's on the ground and the officers pretty much end up practically lifting him up because they're beating him so much. Like, he, he's literally standing straight up because they're just pulling him up and beating him. And it's dark and hard to watch. And this was supposed to be that so-called Scorpion tactical unit or whatever. And they were supposed to be highly trained and blah, blah, blah. I saw a bunch of guys looking at each other, accepting what they were doing and continuing. That might be the most brutal part of it. But the video really does rival the Rodney King beating and death that kind of started this whole era of seeing these videos and reaction to these videos. And yeah, I don't really know what else to say about the video. But it just shows me, though, that there's a long way from police reform actually working. And it does really make me, it makes the more libertarian in me question state-sanctioned violence, as well as what the role of law enforcement should be in society, and how our systems have given them too much power. And that's where I differ from like the conservative side, and definitely I'm more on the libertarian or even left side of this. And I've, I've really evolved over time, because the more of these you see, it's just hard not to. And I will just add, I mean, the, to lighten it kind of, I guess, is that you know it's bad when Jesse Waters, who's a complete a-hole, the goon on Fox News, who looks like a used car salesman wearing a Trumpy suit, he says the video was awful. He says it was hard to watch. So when Jesse Waters is even showing some empathy, yeah, you know it's bad. So anyways, I wanted to move on to my thoughts about this issue because I think this example is very illustrating but it also muddies the waters a bit in kind of the inter like the national dialogue we have about policing, right? First, I, I want to start by talking about the race of the officers and the race of Nichols, because I think we always like, like both sides of this issue, like to put kind of a fine bow on it. And this one kind of muddies the waters, but I think is illustrative of why this is a bigger issue than we may think. And from my understanding, none of the officers that beat Nichols to death were white. And because the beating was done by all non-white cops, I think this could, could cause some white Americans or Americans in general, especially, you know, the, the thin blue line, protect the police ones, who I'm fine with that opinion. But it'll, it'll make them say, because the beating was done by all non-white cops, that maybe they will say the policing system is not racist. They'll say, see, this isn't racism. It's just bad cops. These cops were not white. So how could this be racist, right? And now, I am not an expert on the history of policing by any means, but I know enough in, to at least have this point. And from my understanding, the problem with this thought pattern, the, the thought pattern that, oh, they're not white police, so it can't be racism, is, is not correct. Because modern policing was developed in its infancy as a way, like as part of our white supremacy, slavery institutions. And it was developed as a way to control people 
to limit slaves from escaping, all of these different sides. And of course, that's not the only reason. Of course, law and order and public protection are important as well. But the institution itself was at least rooted in a racist system of slavery and white supremacy. So, of course, there have been reforms. So don't think I'm just saying it's still a racist system completely. It's still a white supremacy system. That is not what I'm saying. However, if you take the race of the officer out of the, of the situation, it's still an institution that's built on a legacy of control and controlling groups that are, I guess, don't have a lot of power. And of course, in our society, that was the African-American black population, right? And I would just argue that we are still seeing remnants of a system that is meant to use force to control marginalized groups. And maybe groups that don't have the same legal protections as others through history. And because of these thoughts I'm expressing, it almost seems to me like the color of the police officer doesn't really matter. And there's Will Salatan. He is a great political writer, commentator for The Bulwark now. I think he was with Politico before. But anyways, I think he brought up a good point yesterday on The Bulwark podcast with Charlie Sykes. And he said that race comes into this even though the officers were not white, not because of the race of the officers, but because of the race of the victim. He, he has an interesting comparison, which is not perfect, but I think it is kind of illustrative of what he's trying to say. He also discusses how, for example, sexual predators often will pick on runaways, right? Or homeless people or whatnot, because they think they can get away with it, right? There's probably going to be less accountability or ramifications because people may never find out about it. And in a sense, he says that seems like the police targeting this guy because they thought they could get away with it, right? It's a neighborhood maybe with less accountability, less oversight. And of course, the Scorpion unit, as we found out later, did not have as much oversight as maybe some people were hoping. So it, it gets really complicated there. It gets really nuanced. But I think, I think Salatan's point is quite astute, and it digs deeper into the issue of just saying that the police are merely racist. It's something more systemic, and it's also detached from just the simple side of, oh, this is just racism. It's like our institutions, in a sense, have been built to this. And I'm not someone who says we need to burn it all down. Everything is racist. No, I'm not. But I'm saying we do need to look at some of the protections we have and some of the reasons why accountability doesn't happen. And now that I have those thoughts out of the way, I will add that I do think we need police. We need law enforcement. You do need laws upheld because that's how you create a society. And, you know, after I've lived in Chicago for a while... I like one of the last weeks I was in Chicago, I, I saw a guy just walk into a liquor store, take a bunch of things and walk out. And I was friends with the guy who ran the store because it was below my apartment. And I go in there to I think I was getting some water. I think it was with my mom, actually. And we were going in there to get something I forget. And and, and the 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 owner of the store is asking me to for help because he's like, this guy just walked out with like three things and he's not buying them. And and I'm like, should we call the police? He's like, oh, the police won't come. And so then this person just ignores him, walks down the street, steals about $40, $50 worth of stuff, and nothing happens. So you need law enforcement in society because when people think they're going to get away with things, they just do more of it. And so I am not one of the ones who say that all police are bad. I am not at all. And I think what instead we need to do is find ways to have effective law enforcement in society. And I've listened to some other perspectives on this, read some other perspectives, and I think Reason Magazine has some really interesting insights that are more from the libertarian perspective. And I should also note that I think libertarians really do differ from conservatives on law enforcement because while conservatives are always like back the blue and really believe in law and order, or at least they do in theory, obviously January 6th did not do that well. Libertarians on the other side are skeptical of state-sanctioned violence and the power of the state to enforce crimes. And this actually kind of is part of that Venn diagram that overlaps with a lot of the left on this one. And 
basically the argument from the Reason Magazine libertarian side of this issue would be the fact that these guys all looked at each other doing this, agreed on what they were doing, and carried out a brutal murder. And to them, this shows the issue is not just racism, but one of a systemic issue of how we value control and the use of force in society. And the libertarians and myself as well would probably argue that we need people to have fewer interactions with the police because it does seem that the system we have of policing is inherently violent, brutal, and picks on, like I said earlier, the people that are vulnerable where there's going to be less accountability. And unfortunately in our society, that usually means minorities like black Americans. And the one example that people always use, and I agree with, is that traffic, shop, uh, traffic stops should not require the involvement of law enforcement, right? Traffic cameras can do a lot. Like, if you run a red light, do you need a police officer to pull you over? No, you probably, traffic cameras can take a picture of your license plate and they send you a bill in the mail. You don't need to have an interaction with a police officer who then maybe, it starts with a routine stop, it ends up them searching your car and then we know how this can escalate, especially when it might be the other or someone that they are a little bit terrified of and their training's not good, right? It can just escalate really quickly. So maybe we need to just get rid of that. And it, it just seems like it would be something simple to fix. Like, of course, you need police officers for violent crime or a robbery or something where you do need force, but that's not every case, right? And the Reason Roundtable discussion, which is a podcast from Reason Magazine, brings up an interesting point. They say, while they agree that there are ghosts of white supremacy and policing, they say it's such an abstract thing to just say policing is racist if you want to actually create public policies to fix it. They, they bring up an interesting point. Is they say by focusing on race and racism with police brutality, we are not as able to actually find meaningful reforms, meaningful solutions, because they say fixing police brutality is way easier than fixing racism in society. Because as, as I've talked about before, racism is such a difficult thing to fix, and it's embedded in almost everything around the world. And it's really hard to just say, oh, we are going to fix racism. Instead, you need to fix the police institution. It'd be much easier. And I think it's a good point. And the most obvious solution would be, I think, I think the most obvious solution to me in terms of if, if you wanted to at least start accountability would be arresting all of these types of people that do these crimes, like the five guys who murdered Nichols, and throw them in jail and get rid of the key, right? Throw them there for a long time. Because I think once these bad apples or police who think they can get away with things realize that they're going to go to prison for life, and they won't be protected, this would scare them into not committing these acts. And I should add, you know, that, I mean, accountability is obviously the easiest one, better training, but also accountability. It just seems like we don't ever get the accountability, even after everything that's happened with calls for police reform in the last few years, because we keep seeing these videos. So obviously the accountability thing's not happening. And I should add that I think body cams are something that's kind of been overblown in their efficacy. Um, I don't think they've really fixed anything, right? Because since the institution of body cams have been used, I thought that they would actually create cops being more afraid of what they're doing. And I'm sure there's cases they do. But if you see, for example, the, the, the Nichols video, the officers just seem to act in front of the body cams and they even lie about what Nichols is doing. As to, so it looks like, I, I think there's one point, if I recall correctly, the officer says something to the effect of Tyree Nichols has a weapon. And they're saying this in front of the body cam, so it maybe makes them look less like they're in the wrong, right? And also they can turn them off. 
And it's just a strange phenomenon because I think that while these cams have made the public more aware of what some officers are doing, which is important, I like oversight and transparency, it just seems to me like the behavior of police officers has not actually changed with body cams, though the public now knows what's happening. The thing I'll add here is that I think another issue with the oversight is that you had this Scorpion task force. Now, it's been disbanded now, but I was reading this morning that while this group was treated like an elite unit to go into parts of the city that were deemed more dangerous or whatnot, it was really not being held too accountable and there was limited oversight on what it was doing. And yes, it did some good things from what I've read, but then it also had them do this. And if you're trying to reduce interactions with the police, unless we truly need them, I think these special forces groups that are maybe trained to be more reactive than interactive are kind of a problem. They almost seem to be looking for issues instead of sometimes trying to solve them. And that seems to be the case here. So if you're trying to make policing more effective, I think bringing in these type of groups that are more almost militaristic is a problem. Now, moving on, I want to talk about judicial deference, qualified immunity, and judicial review a little bit as well. And sorry to be negative here, but I will just add that the justice for victims of these issues is pretty limited and rare. Now, that could be changing, but as of now, that's the case. And there's a good Atlantic article on this issue that discusses how police are charged in less than 2% of fatal shootings, and they're convicted in less than a third of those cases. And police departments basically rarely discipline or fire their officers. And the article discusses that the swift firing of these Memphis officers is quite rare. And this, this made me reflect back on my administrative law classes in my master's program that I recently wrapped up. And we discussed judicial, re judicial review, agency oversight, deference, and qualified immunity. And deference has been used as a means, in my opinion, to kind of limit judicial review on different government agencies. And the best way I would summarize this would be that judicial deference is that it's kind of a condition of a court yielding or submitting its judgment to that of another party. In this case, it could be a government agency, the executive branch in terms of national defense, whatnot. In some cases, federal courts, as well as lower courts, allow government agencies to basically review or police themselves. And Warren, who's a scholar of administrative law, we did a lot of reading by him in one of my classes, and he discussed that deference can be used as a practical weapon to limit the scope of government review or oversight, and it can be good sometimes. And because from my understanding, the argument for deference is that the agency is more likely than the court to know what it needs to do. It, it gives them independence to run better. And it, it may know what type of rulemaking was issued for the agency to work better. And the other argument is that the agency knows better than a court regarding which interpretation will allow the agency to pursue its mission. And there's an empirical study, I think it was from 2011, and it's on judicial review in the administrative law review. It's by Pierce and Vice. And they note that there is a 91% rate that the Supreme Court upholds agency interpretation. So you really do have a lot of agencies conducting their own rulemaking and their own review and their own internal auditing without a lot of judicial oversight. And this leads to qualified immunity, which is a more recent part of this, but its, it's legal basis is in these other things I've talked about. And basically qualified immunity protects state and local officials, including law enforcement officers, from individual liability unless the official violated something that's clearly established and a clearly established constitutional right. Now, what I will just add that under, uh, no, sorry, I will just add that I understand why government agencies 
want to give this deference and oversight ability to the agency. Like I said, they have a better understanding of the procedures that make their operations run. And it's always important to be hesitant of strong courts that become anti-democratic. You know, there's always examples of courts around the world that have legitimated anti-democratic laws and practices, for example, banned opposition parties to constrict electoral politics. They've eliminated presidential term limits, repressed opposition. Like you don't want courts that are too strong, right? You really don't, you want to balance. And so I think that's why sometimes you want to just give deference to these agencies. But however, the circumstances in which federal courts review the actions of agencies are usually informed by complicated limitations that I won't even begin to describe because I don't even get all of them. But there's certain tests that the courts actually have to use in order to go about this. And the Administrative Procedure Act, or the APA, which we studied a lot in my program, it subjects a very broad scope of agency decisions to judicial review. And basically, long story short, it seems like our administrative system, mainly under the APA, just gives a lot of discretion to agencies. And this can allow for corruption, even though it was almost meant to limit corruption. Like it's one of the complications or ironies or paradoxes of our system in general. And now the last thing I'll say is this, this takes us back to that Atlantic article, right? That discusses how our courts have made it kind of hard to hold officers and police accountable. The article writes in quotes here, typically victims only, typically a victim's only recourse is a civil lawsuit, which is, sorry, I lost the article here which is a civil lawsuit seeking money or court-ordered reforms. In 1961, the Supreme Court ruled that people could sue officers who violated their constitutional rights under a federal statute enacted 90 years earlier. This was during the bloody years of Reconstruction. The article continues later in quotes, after that 1961 decision, the number of police misconduct suits filed shot up, but so did paranoia and concerns about the suit's potentially ruinous effects. And, and the article then goes into like basically how there was then a backlash against basically holding these police accountable. And this led to the Supreme Court constantly strengthening qualified immunity into the 70s and 80s. And ever since then, the standards that the courts keep increasing have made it hard for many victims to get justice. And that is why this is such a difficult issue. And so this going full circle back, while I agree that there are issues of racism embedded in our institutions like policing, the issues above like deference, judicial review, the ability for agencies to almost regulate themselves because they understand the rules they're making better, those are things that could be reversed or at least focused on instead of just saying we need to fix racism in a police department because right now I don't know how we do that. So I'll move on from this for now, but we are seeing protests across the country. People are angry, and I do hope something changes, though, again, it's easier said than done. But anyways, but I want to thank you for listening, and take care of yourselves. Get some sun, get some vitamin D, get out there, enjoy your life. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. If I forgot, take care. Thank you.